Well, hello, St. Peter's Fireside. Wherever you are watching right now, I'm really grateful that you've taken some time to join me in entering into God's word today. We're living in uncertain and disorienting times. And I want to encourage you that the best thing we can do together is to come and listen to God's word. When the world feels like it's upside down and uncertain, it is the ground that can be beneath our feet. I was chatting with a friend just the other day, uh, and he was telling me how he felt as if he'd been in a fog spiritually lately. He said he'd felt disoriented, like something was off, but he wasn't quite sure what. There were some difficult decisions looming in his life, and after we talked a bit and listened together, we were able to discern that these were playing into his feelings of fogginess and uncertainness. We spent some time praying together, doing the daily offices, the morning office, and reading scripture. And when we looked up after our time of prayer, it was like we could both take a deep breath. On that day, I had been feeling a bit foggy too. So it was a grounding moment to enter into scripture. We experienced the word of God together, speaking in our need. We experienced the breath of the Holy Spirit, blowing away that fogginess. And it was as if all of a sudden things were sharper. It was as if all of a sudden the day ahead of us wasn't so ambiguous. We, we, we saw a way forward. We could see. This was Wednesday, March 17th, when I had this conversation, to be exact. The next day, Thursday, March 18th, is the day our society really started to shut down in a way that no one alive has ever experienced. The level of uncertainty we are living in, the degree of fogginess that exists right now is unprecedented. People will be writing and thinking and musing about the way COVID-19 pushed pause on the world at the outset of 2020 for a very long time. Right now, we are in the thick of it and it's foggy. It is from this moment in time, a season of anxious unrest and fear in our global family, that we come to God's eternal word together. Ecclesiastes has taught us that in each and every season we live through, there is always a thread to the eternal presence of our Lord. There is always a thread to Jesus. We need this now more than ever. So let's pray that God's eternal word may blow through our houses today, wherever we're listening and watching this together, that God's word may come and clear out the fog and create space for us to get our bearings in this season and to orient us towards walking in the way of Jesus. Lord God, your words are powerful. Your words speak truth into chaos. Your words settle the anxious and unnerve the complacent. Today, will you open our ears? Holy Spirit, blow through our houses wherever we're listening. Will you bring clarity of sight amidst the current fog of our lives? In light of COVID-19 and the many other challenges we each face right now in our journey following you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today we reach the half point in the Hebrew scroll of Ecclesiastes. We're halfway through this book. And we'll see a shift in the preacher's tone and in his, in his direction in the second half of the book. His reflections on the meaning of life continue. However, he, he begins to give more counsel, more direction for how, to, how do we live out this short life that we have with purpose. 
the topic he directly addresses is wisdom. Despite the meaninglessness of life on its own, despite the fact that all human ambitions are destroyed by death, there is a way to live that's better than another way to live. There is a way to live in light of these stark realities. There is a way to live where we see the temporality and frailty of life and step out of the fog of delusion that our world pulls us into in so many ways. It's the way of wisdom. Wisdom, but what is wisdom? Let me ask you, what do you think wisdom is? Think about it for a moment. Maybe you're like Thomas Jefferson, a founding father of the United States, who said, early to bed, early to rise, makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. Wisdom is hard work that leads to success, health, and money. Or maybe you fall in line with the Stoic idea of detachment, which is wise, found in many Eastern religions. The wise don't become entangled with the emotional entrapments of the world, but hold them at arm's length. Wisdom is rational and self-protective. But these aren't what we see in Ecclesiastes, and they're not what we see in the rest of the Bible. So here's our main idea today. Wisdom is clear sight. Wisdom is clear sight. Wisdom is seeing clearly the bleakness of life with hope. And wisdom is seeing clearly the beauty of life with gratitude. This is wisdom. So let's jump into Ecclesiastes together. If you have a Bible handy, I encourage you to pull it out now. And if you don't have one, you can easily type Ecclesiastes 6-7 to ESV into Google right now and you'll have it at a moment's notice in your hands. Most of this passage is in poetic verse, we'll quickly see. But it starts with a few rhetorical questions that are classic themes in Ecclesiastes. Let's read those together at the end of chapter 6, which sums up a lot of Ecclesiastes to this point. So let's look at Ecclesiastes 6, verses 10 to 12. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. Futility. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Again, we hear despair, futility, vanity. There is nothing new under the sun. He has three summary reflections at this point. First, the more words spoken, the more vanity. What is the advantage of them? What is the point? Second, Who really knows what is good? Who knows what is ultimately good in this fleeting life? Who knows? And third, who knows what will come after us? Who knows the future? Who knew what is happening right now would happen? His answer to all of these three questions is negative. More words are pointless. No one knows what is ultimately good. And no one knows the future. This is the common condition of humanity. So where do we go from here? 
Well, the preacher could move deeper into a dark hole of despondency and never come out. But, like a good songwriter, he moves from his darkness into a lyrical reflection on our condition and a way forward on wisdom, the way of godly wisdom. He doesn't try to solve the difficulties raised or offer solutions that fix them or make life better. He invites us to live in light of the temporality and frailty of life with wisdom, with clear sight of what is going on around us, the bleakness and the beauty. Let's listen then to the first eight verses of chapter seven together. We'll read Ecclesiastes seven verses one to eight. This is the beginning of that poetry. A good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Well, I have two questions to ask the preacher from this section. One, does this mean wisdom is living in constant darkness? Am I meant to hang out at a funeral home? Is attending a funeral, funeral and contemplating death really better than a feast? Is sorrow really better than laughter? This is certainly not what the world around me says. What does this mean? And second, how does this perspective fit with the preacher's earlier advice in Ecclesiastes, even that I preached on a few weeks ago? Recall chapter 3, verses 12 to 13, for example. The preacher writes, there is nothing better than to be joyful and do good as long as they live. Everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to mankind. So, am I meant to live in the shadow of death? Or am I meant to be joyful? To go about mourning or feasting? But with these questions, which are good questions, we must consider, what does the preacher mean for one thing to be better than another thing? In what sense is the house of mourning better than the house of feasting? Or in what sense is sorrow better than laughter? Here's the key. This passage is about wisdom, about sharpening our sight. The things that are better than are the things that help us grow in wisdom. They're the things that help us see the big picture. The things that are better bring clarity. They reveal truth. They force us to face reality. It's bleakness and it's beauty. Considering death as a potent way of doing this, these things help us become acutely aware of the end and then to live in light of it. Let's look at verses two to three, for example. 
Again, the funeral is better than the feast because at the funeral, we must grapple with the reality that one day, the funeral will be our own. It forces us to face the end of our earthly life. But then in verse 3, we're invited to pursue a gladness that comes out of sorrow. We're challenged to embrace a sadness of face, sorrow, when life demands it, and learn from what it has to teach us while we still have life in our breath. The preacher goes on. He rebukes the song and laughter of fools that is vanity, that is blind and hopeless. So we see two dispositions here. There's a gladness that moves out of sorrow, and there's a laughter and song that is foolish and vain. What's the difference between the two? The glad heart of the wise has strength, has fortitude to weep in suffering and to move into a hope-filled laughter when the time is right that rings deeply in the soul. When I was 17, a friend of mine tragically died in a skiing accident on a class trip in Colorado. I went to the house of mourning when my teacher stood up in front of a hundred of us kids and told us this horrific news. I wept, I think, that day like I'd never wept before. I felt the shock of death, the suddenness of it, the finality, a life ended so far too soon. Yet in the few days later after that, there was moments of real laughter with friends. Real laughter, recalling with gratitude the memories and moments of Logan's life that had ended. I was living in the house of mourning and I did lay it to heart. Facing death in this stark way at this pivotal age in my life changed me. I've lived with a deep awareness of life as a gift and the frailty of it and the desperate need for meaning that penetrates beyond death ever since then. I was given clearer sight. I was given a bit of wisdom in that house of mourning. The laughter of fools is a different thing. It's heard at a lively feast on a sinking ship. It's blind to what's going on around it. This sort of eating and drinking or inordinate consumption of anything, whether Netflix or work or alcohol or other people, is from fear that causes us to numb. The anxiety is thick around us right now, isn't it, friends? Maybe you're working from home alone, wondering if you'll even have a job in a few weeks, worried if your mental health will tank from all this disruption in your schedule and the fear of the world. Maybe you're fearful about a sick grandparent, scared of what's going to happen to you and to the rest of the world. I've been feeling some of those things lately. The laughter of fools says a few drinks and some Netflix will push down the fog of fear for the rest of the night, at least. But this isn't the way of wisdom because fear distorts our sight. Not because the risks and the, and the worries aren't real around us. They are. But because living in fear distances us from the hope we have founded upon the living God 
who is a God of restoration, a God who is ever-present help in trouble and in times of need, like right now. Living in fear also submerges us in fog because we can no longer receive the beauty of life as gift. It's just all bleak. I got a text yesterday that some good friends of mine in the UK are pregnant with their first baby. A gift to celebrate. It penetrated that fog. And for a moment's notice, I had, a, I had this beautiful gift to receive and give thanks for. And I urge us all to lean in here too. Living with wisdom, godly wisdom, means continuing to receive the good gifts of life as what they are, as good gifts. It's this sort of posture that allows God's people to endure in seasons of darkness. The preacher sums up this contrast between wisdom and foolishness in verse 8. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. The end is better than the beginning because the end is revealing. It's easy to begin things, not so to finish them. The wise are patient in spirit and endure to the end of a thing with hope. The foolish are proud. They begin many things but have no endurance to carry them through to the end. The late Eugene Peterson put it this way, sticking to it is better than standing out. This verse has struck me deeply this week too. How can we stick to the life of following Jesus? How can we stick to it and hold on hope amidst a global pandemic and the bleakness of it? We must recognize that we are at the beginning of the disruption that COVID-19 will create. How long will it last? How many people will get sick? How many will die? What about the economy? There's so many questions on our minds. And how will we stick it out to the end as a people of faith? Can we be a community? Can we be the church that thrives in this time? The preacher has given us the way of godly wisdom here, seeing clearly the bleakness and the beauty around us and engaging the world with hope and with gratitude. In the rest of this passage, the preacher points out other helpful pieces of godly wisdom. The destructive toll of anger, how it lodges in and corrupts the heart, and yes, that's true too. The preacher points out the emptiness of naive nostalgia. Don't go about wishing for the good old days in these difficult times. Yes, he's right about that too. The preacher even acknowledges how crooked life often seems, how God's sovereignty over the world often makes no sense to us. Who can straighten out the curves and surprises of creation? The wise know they cannot. And yes, that's right too. But we have a problem. It's not enough. It's insufficient. We can learn about wisdom as the way forward in an otherwise meaningless life, even godly wisdom. And on its own, it usually falls flat and makes no real difference in people's lives. Why is that? It's because we're human, and we are incredibly prone to living exclusively for ourselves. When things don't go our way, we don't handle it well, do we? We are unpredictable and inconsistent. 
We are selfish and greedy. And if you don't think so, just go check out the grocery store aisles right now. Very few people have the mental self-discipline to consistently return to a right perspective on life on their own. And the ones that do are not usually the people who make you feel great to be around. A lot of the Jewish leaders in the first century that Jesus had run-ins with were these sort of people. They knew the way of God as revealed in the Jewish scriptures, like Ecclesiastes. They thought they knew how to walk in it too. They thought they had it sorted all out. Paul of Tarsus was one of these people. He was a Jewish scholar, trained by the best rabbis. He knew the traditions of the people. He could cite the scriptures. He knew Ecclesiastes much better than I do. Yet he learned through a dramatic encounter with the presence of the living God that literally knocked him off of his horse and made him go blind for a time, that following the way of wisdom is not possible on his own. And this is important for us because of a Jewish rabbi who devoted his whole life to studying scripture and living in accordance with it, realized that wisdom, like the wisdom we've been learning of in Ecclesiastes, was good and right, but not possible to achieve on his own. We better not make the same mistake and try to live it on our own. The mistake is like this, trying hard to be a good person, doing your best to live up to standards, putting your best foot forward in hopes of acceptance from God. This is moralism, not Christianity, and it will turn you either into a pride-filled person or a shame-filled person. And if your experience with the church is people like that who are filled with pride or filled with shame, I'm so sorry. What Paul learned is that Jesus had something different to offer. Jesus, the Son of God, came to fulfill the godly wisdom of Ecclesiastes and offer a way to experience this sort of life. Wisdom as good advice on living? Not enough. There are plenty of dusty books with great advice in them to show us that. What Paul found in the person of Jesus was God coming to him, to him directly, and saying his name, Saul, Saul, stop what you're doing. Stop persecuting me. Stop trying so hard. My name is Jesus. I've accepted you. Come, follow me. Later, Paul would write these words to a church in Corinth. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jew and Greek, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Paul learned Jesus Christ is not only the fulfillment of God's wisdom, revealing God's character and showing us what it looks like to engage the bleakness and the beauty of life boldly, but he is also the power of God. He also says, come, abide with me, enter into a relationship with me, and you will find rest. You will find rest and strength the thread connecting us to Jesus in this season of uncertainty will first be drawing on his presence 
by releasing our fears, our anxieties, maybe anger, maybe disappointment at things not happening. The first step will be releasing these to God. It will then be facing the bleakness of a global pandemic with hope and still receiving the good gifts around us with gratitude. You can hold on to hope that the God over history has us in his hands right now. Will you pray with me? And I invite you to open your hands just simply in front of you and pray this way with me. Jesus, you promise that in your name there is life. You promise that you are the way, the truth, and the life. We proclaim that today. We proclaim you are God, and we proclaim you can handle this. So now we release all of our fears and anxieties and worries to you. And I encourage you to take a moment to do that and name them. We release the health of loved ones, of neighbors, of ourselves, finances, plans. We release our responsibilities and the other weights on our shoulders to you. We know, Jesus, that you have made us for relationship with you. Will you refresh us now with your powerful presence in this moment? Will your Holy Spirit blow through our homes, through our places, blow out some of the fog and refresh us with clear sight? And will you empower us by your spirit, to be a non-anxious presence in this time. Will you fill us with your power through your presence to be a non-anxious presence, a courageous presence at this time for the good of our city, for the good of our world. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.